This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. As always, it's wonderful to have your company. Taiwan's president secured a second term over the weekend. Ecstatic scenes for supporters of the woman who stood up to China. We think we hate China because China always believes Taiwan is a part of China, but we don't think so. Taiwan's recent election is widely seen as a watershed moment. A referendum between two very different choices. Tsai Ing-wen, she's the president since 2016, she promised to protect Taiwan's freedoms from an increasingly assertive and autocratic Beijing. Or the nationalist Kuomintang, that's KMT, opposition, which stressed closer ties with Beijing. The result, a landslide to Tsai and her ruling independence-leading Democratic Progressive Party. It was her warnings about China that hit home with voters. This threat is real. We deserve um, uh, respect from China. The situation has changed. You, you cannot exclude the possibility of a war at any time. Invading Taiwan is, is something that is going to be very costly uh, for China. Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen on the BBC. Now, she scored more votes than any other presidential candidate since Taiwan began holding democratic elections in 1996. So why has Beijing's effort to control Taiwan, why has that backfired? And will China now back off from what it sees as a renegade province? Remember, most nations, including the United States and Australia, we adhere to the One China Policy – which means we formally acknowledge Beijing's claims over Taiwan. But what can Washington and Canberra do to help this vibrant island democracy of 24 million in the face of a rising China? Natasha Kassam is research fellow at the Lowy Institute for International Policy, where she directs the annual Lowy Institute poll. She's a former Australian diplomat. And Hugh White is Emeritus Professor of Strategic Studies at the Australian National University and author of How to Defend Australia. He's a former Deputy Defence Secretary. Natasha, Hugh, welcome to RN. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having us, Tom. Now, Natasha, why has China lost the battle for public opinion in Taiwan? Look, I do think there's a real question as to whether China ever had a chance in this respect. You've got a long-standing opposition in Taiwan to unification with China. You've got a long-standing opposition to one country, two systems, the model that China developed in the 80s for both Taiwan and Hong Kong. And of course, we see the problematic way that's playing out in Hong Kong today. But the most important issue here, I think, has been the emergence of a unique Taiwanese identity. This is what has really changed over the last decade. The majority of Taiwanese people, they see themselves as Taiwanese. And in part, this is in opposition to a growing authoritarian reach from China. But in part, it's a product of Taiwan's transition to democracy, its unique history in terms of its different periods of colonization and indigenous peoples. I think today we can see that there's far more that divides Taiwan and China than unites them. Yes, that growing sense of uh, independence in Taiwan and uh, Natasha mentions Hong Kong and uh, uh, how that was supposed to be the roadmap for China's one country, two systems policy that clearly rebuked in these elections. Uh, Hugh, how does Beijing view all this? Well, I think they must be very gloomy, very concerned, and I think getting pretty angry because I completely agree with Natasha. I think the election is very significant because it confirms 
absolutely that the prospect of an eventual consensual reunification, that is of Taiwan agreeing to be absorbed or reabsorbed by the mainland, looks more and more remote. And the problem for everyone, including for Taiwan, is that uh, Beijing is very unlikely to accept that. Beijing, for Beijing, reunification, as I see it, bringing Taiwan back into China is an essential part of their agenda, of Xi Jinping's agenda, to, to for the rejuvenation, as he calls it, of, of China, the overcoming of that century of humiliation, which began with the Opium Wars all the way back in the 1840s, and which he has set himself to overcome and overturn. And I think for him, getting Taiwan back, as he would see it, is there is nothing more important to him, nothing more important to the Communist Party. And so we have uh, the seeds of a real tragedy here because, as Natasha says, it's clearer and clearer that the Taiwanese don't want to be part of China and it's as clear as it's ever been that the Chinese are determined to make it part of okay, China. OK, Hugh, but you say Washington... Uh, sorry, Beijing won't accept Taiwan's growing assertiveness, but hasn't Beijing's conduct here been counterproductive? I think of uh, China's efforts to intensify military exercises around the Taiwan Strait, efforts to isolate diplomatically uh, Taiwan. Uh, hasn't that just stiffened the resolve of the Taiwanese? Uh, yes, I expect it has. I think um, I think that's been a factor. I think, as Natasha says, I think what's happened in Hong Kong has, has disabused anyone in Taiwan of any illusions about what one country, two systems would really mean if it was applied uh, to, to Taiwan. I think the growing authoritarian nature of the Chinese Communist Party rule in China itself under Xi Jinping uh, has added to that. But I also think, as Natasha says again, that that the, the, the long-term development of Taiwan itself, Taiwan's own identity, it's that the, the evolution of a very vibrant uh, democracy there uh, meant that perhaps whatever Beijing had done, even if Beijing had been much less uh, frightening than it has been, it still would have been uh, unlikely that Taiwan would move voluntarily to do what Beijing wants. Natasha, is Hugh White right here? And he's not alone. We've had on this program over the last few years, Professor John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago. The argument here is that not only will China be much more powerful than it is today, but it will also remain deeply committed to making uh, Taiwan part of China. Uh, I think Xi's deadline is the centenary of the communist revolution, which would be uh, 2049. Uh, in other words, Time is on China's side. Your response? Look, I don't disagree that Taiwan is a really significant priority for Xi Jinping's China, but I think it's important when we think about what their highest priority is. And for me, that is always the domestic legitimacy of the party state. And so Beijing's policies are primarily directed at that domestic audience. They might be failing in Taiwan, but certainly what they are designed to do is to demonstrate to people in China that Beijing holds all the cards, that they have are able to exert military pressure on Taiwan, that they can exclude Taiwan from international organisations. That is the highest priority. And under Xi Jinping's China, I think the hardline inflexible policies will just continue regardless of the, the effect that they have in Taiwan. But at the same time, I do think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy to argue that China will become so powerful, so we should roll over and do nothing, and therefore it will allow be allowed to become even more powerful. Um, in military and economic terms, I think this is almost a given now for China, but it's not a given in terms of China's power. China's power has been restricted in the region in so many ways. Many countries, including Australia, do not recognise the ADIS over the East China Sea. China hasn't succeeded in um, 
achieving its goals in the South China Sea. It hasn't succeeded in closing US bases in Japan. There's that in South Korea in numerous ways. I wouldn't say that time is on China's side. If anything, I think that China, as a rational actor, recognises the costs of a protracted war are much higher than the cost of their patience. Well, Hugh, on that note, uh, has, uh, has Xi Jinping overreached here and brought other countries, led by the US, but including Australia, to take a, a newly sceptical view of China? Uh, look, cl- clearly, Tom, as China's power grows, as its, as its system becomes more authoritarian, as the way it seeks to exert its influence throughout the region becomes, to put it politely, more assertive, a lot of countries in Asia and beyond are becoming more and more worried about what China's power and how China's going to use its power means over the next few decades. But I think we'd be too optimistic to imagine that China is somehow becoming a self-limiting problem. I do think Mm. China's power has grown. I think its influence has grown. It's still true, of course, as Natasha says, that there are lots of things that China would like that it hasn't yet got. But I'm more pessimistic than she is that about China's capacity to, to get its way increasingly as time goes on. And it's worth bearing in mind all the things that China does get, that yes, uh, not everyone accepts what China wants to do in the South China Sea, but Australia itself hasn't undertaken serious freedom of navigation operations. Australia Mm. itself does not acknowledge China as a strategic rival the way the United States Mm. does. Japan is treating China increasingly cautiously as it becomes less and less confident about uh, Donald Trump's uh, America and the way it will pursue its uh, responsibilities towards Japan under their treaty. So I think actually China is doing pretty well. I think we'd make a big mistake to underestimate Uh, both China's resolve and its capacity to use its influence to get what it wants. My guests are Hugh White from ANU and Natasha Kassam from Lowy, and we're talking about Taiwan and China in the wake of the island democracy's election. It's widely seen as a rebuke to Beijing. Natasha, uh, you say Beijing's going to weaken Taiwan's democracy. How so? Look, I, I think I said that it was going to try, and I think it is trying in many ways. It's trying through disinformation and by purchasing more media outlets in Taiwan and then controlling the narrative in that way. It is certainly trying to infiltrate grassroots organisations like temple organisations and farmers and fisheries groups. The thing is that Beijing is very much moving away, I think, from trying to support just one side of politics, the Kuomintang, which has always been seen as more friendly towards Beijing insofar as that has been unsuccessful because the Kuomintang is not able, to, as we've, for all of the reasons we've already outlined, they are not able to deliver Taiwan in any way because of the way of public opinion against China. So now I believe that Beijing is trying to undermine the democracy itself, trying to undermine people's faith in institutions, trying to essentially mess it up. I think the best expression I've heard is turn it into Crimea so that you have a government paralysed, a government that people do not trust, mm. And in that way, the system would be much weaker. Well, Hugh, you, uh, you and Natasha seem to agree that uh, Beijing is going to try to weaken uh, Taiwan's democracy and certainly uh, Beijing will increase pressure to open talks on reunification. I suppose the question here is why is China so sensitive about Taiwan? I mean, if you think about it, Taiwan, uh, or Formosa as it was earlier known, it's only been part of China for something like four out of the past 125 years since Japanese colonisation in 1895, four out of 125, and those four years were when the nationalists who fled to Taiwan, they were running the mainland. So why the sensitivity, Hugh White? 
Well, Tom, because 125 years is not very long time in the way the Chinese people and the Chinese government see themselves. And it's precisely that 125 years that they see, correctly in some ways, as being a very black period in their history and that the, the great mission of the Communist Party has been to bring China out of that. As I said before, the rejuvenation of the Chinese people. It's hard to underestimate, to overestimate the, the emotional power behind this idea of China returning to its previous position. And Taiwan has become, and the Chinese Communist Party has made Taiwan into a symbol of everything bad that happened to China before and everything that they are resolved to fix. And the way in which they, they brought Hong Kong back into the fold, the way in which they've grown their economy, the way in which they've reasserted China's military power and have a trying at least to reassert its soft power, its cultural power, so to speak, all of that is part of the deal. But Taiwan is in a sense the the jewel in the crown for them. And so I think the, the political and to a certain extent the emotional uh, freight that the Taiwan issue carries does make it absolutely central to the, the Communist Party's, not just its own sense of itself, but its confidence that it can continue to command the loyalty and achieve the legitimacy in the eyes of the Chinese people. It's what the Communist Party delivers, not just in terms of prosperity, but in terms of China's dignity and position in the world, symbolised by Taiwan, that is so central to its legitimacy as the government of China. And does that mean, Natasha Kassam, that there's now a very real danger that the lesson Beijing takes from Tsai's re-election is that the only way Taiwan will ever reunify with mainland China is at the end of a gun? Look, that's entirely possible, but I have to say I'm not convinced by that as an argument, mainly because we like to think of China's military power in terms of it being this very quick victory over Taiwan because they are so overwhelmingly outgunned in that sense. But none, nothing about this would be easy. It would be very difficult to take Taiwan in terms of its geography. And even an invasion is really just the beginning when you have 24 million people who don't want to be a part of your country. You will have refugees for flocking to other countries in the region, including Australia. You'll have resistance in the streets. You'll have disruption to global supply chains at which Taiwan lies at its heart. This is not an easy proposition. It is laden with risk and the Communist Party is averse to risk. And all this depends on whether America fights for Taiwan. Hugh White, that surely matters enormously for Beijing's calculations, right? Oh, yes, uh, Tom, it absolutely does. I mean, I think Natasha's right. Uh, there's a reason why the Communist Party hasn't moved militarily against Taiwan over all the decades uh, since 1949. And that is precisely, as she says, even today with, with China's vastly increased military power, it would be an immense and costly undertaking militarily and extraordinarily disruptive politically, diplomatically uh, and, and economically. But balanced against that is the extraordinary importance that they place on it. And then, of course, as you say, there's the question of American intervention. America, Americans feel themselves to be committed to defend Taiwan uh, from long history and the Taiwan Relations Act that was passed uh, back in the early 1980s. But they also, I think, increasingly feel that resisting China over Taiwan is critical to resisting China's bid to displace America as the leading power in Asia. Taiwan has become, if you like, the primary symbol of who, which of them, which of those two countries is the leading power in Asia. So America has very strong incentives to come in and support Taiwan militarily if China tries it on. But on the other hand, it's no longer true that America has any options for a quick, easy victory over China 
in a war over Taiwan. On the contrary, a war over Taiwan is one that America can no longer win. It wouldn't lose it, but it wouldn't win it. And the danger of it escalating, including escalating to a nuclear exchange, is now really quite high. So an American president sitting in the situation room at three o'clock in the morning, asking whether to push back against a Chinese military move against Taiwan would have to ask, am I really willing to risk a nuclear attack Mm. on Los Angeles over this? And it's not clear to me, and I don't think it's clear in Beijing, what the answer would be. Hugh, Natasha, to be continued. Thanks so much for being on Between the Lines today. It's a great pleasure. Thanks, Tom. Hugh White is from the ANU and author of How to Defend Australia. And Natasha Kassam is from the Lowy Institute for International Policy. You're an RN. Well, we celebrate Australia Day this long weekend, but do we really know what event we're marking? How often have you heard people conflate our national holiday and James Cook? Bridget McKenzie, the embattled Deputy Nationals leader, she did so in 2018. That's right. She claimed Australia Day represented the moment Captain James Cook landed in Botany Bay in 1770. So did, by the way, Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young. They're hardly alone. Many Australians, frankly, are strikingly ignorant about our history. Of course, Australia Day, as we discussed with author David Hill last week, marks the arrival of the first fleet to Sydney Cove, carrying mainly convicts and troops from Britain. Now, that was on January 26, 1788, 18 years after Captain Cook reached the east coast of the continent. And as it happens, this April marks the 250th anniversary of Cook reaching our shores. Now, for more on Cook, arguably the greatest navigator and explorer ever, let's turn to Peter Fitzsimons. He's author of James Cook, The Story Behind the Man Who Mapped the World. Peter's also a columnist with the Sydney Morning Herald and the Sun Herald. G'day, Peter. G'day, Tom. Thank you for having me. I'm having a lovely time. My pleasure. Now, we tend to see Cook as a particularly significant to Australian history. What's he significant, not just for us, but for the whole world? That's interesting. I've just come back from England, in fact, from researching my next book. But he, uh, he's also huge in England, obviously. You know, he yeah. was he was the man. I mean, it's interesting you introduced that via Bridget McKenzie and <laughs> no, Senator Hanson Young, because their mistakes on that is emblematic of widespread ignorance. And yeah. I had much the same ignorance. And my wife, Lisa Wilkinson, who you know, mm. she made the point to me five or six years ago that I should do this book because there is no more significant figure in Australian history sort of floating over everything. He's yeah. constantly referred to. He's constantly denigrated and celebrated in fairly equal measure. And yet we know nothing about the man himself and we know little of what he actually did. And so he was always, always with people like Cook. The tendency is to say, if not for Cook, it never would have happened. Whereas the truth of it is that the east coast of Australia, of New Holland as it was then, was going to be found sometime by someone. And yet Cook was, the interesting thing about Cook is that he came from really humble circumstances. And I sort of think think of him as an Abraham Lincoln type figure in terms of rising 
with the drive for education and intellectual curiosity. And he was particularly good at two things. One was navigating, the new system of navigation and cartography, drawing maps. Mm. And, he and that's was clear all- in your book. You've got a lot of good graphs on that. Yeah. And he was also, he understood astronomy. So the, the wonderful story that Edmund Halley, uh, the famous English astronomer in the 1600s, just before he dies, says, now listen, in 1769... You're going to have to get somebody for the transit of <laughs> Venus across the sun. Get him out there. And he dies. And, <laughs> and he leaves this note that, that the Royal Society of England in the 1760s says, we've got to get somebody in the South Pacific. Who will we get? The, this young fellow, Cook. Yes. And so he- He's he, pretty young. What, he's mid to late 30s? Yeah, that's right. And he, uh, very young and had come a long way in a very short time. Mm. And so Cook uh, takes the endeavour, which is basically a floating cork, and he takes, it, <laughs> he takes it around the southern tip of South America and they arrive in Tahiti to, to record the transit of Venus across the sun. And fascinating on board was Joseph Banks. Mm-hmm, the and botanist. I wanted, the publisher wouldn't let me do it, but I wanted to call the book The Odd Couple because, <laughs> because I was fascinated by the, by the polar opposites of Cook, poor as a church mouse, driven by, driven by a desire to succeed, to rise in the ranks. And Joseph, and they gave him, when Cook was agreed to do it, the Royal Society gave him a stipend of £20 to fit yourself out, young man. Joseph Banks, young aristocrat, puts £10,000 on the table saying, I'm coming to with my retinue of artists yes. and, you know, botany people. A fair, again, emblematic of the well, difference. Well, you do spend in- a lot of your book contrasting Cook with uh, the botanist uh, Joseph Banks, mm. and it has to be said that uh, of Cook, we'll talk about this in a minute, Cook dies a few years later in Hawaii, but mm. Cook was, uh, sorry, Banks was a major figure in uh, British public life for decades afterwards, and he maintained a keen interest in this part of the world, didn't yes, he? he did, and he... He he collected, you know. He when he gets to Australia, particularly. So Tahiti's interesting to Banks, and New Zealand yes, is interesting of course, to Banks. New Zealand, yes. But when he gets to to Australia, it is a smorgasbord of flowers, plants, insects, animals like he's never seen or mm. imagined. And he and his people collected so many, and they stored them. The to this day. In the British Museum, right. they yeah. haven't all been opened up. I mean, it's absolutely right. extraordinary. Now, listen, back to Cook and his setting foot on not just the east coast mm. of Australia and Tahiti, as you mentioned, but also New Zealand. What accounts for the fact that he did this before the Dutch, the Portuguese or the French? Well, I, I love when I did the book on the shipwreck of the Batavia, I got into the, you know, the story of the Doifkin. So the Doifkin was, I think it's called the Little Dove. It was a Dutch ship that goes, leaves leaves the Dutch East Indies, gets to the southern tip of, uh, gets to southern New Guinea, what we know as New Guinea, and they land and they need water and it's getting dark. And these, I think it was 12 guys going down this path looking for water and they can hear drum beats and it's dum, 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 dum. And suddenly, and three guys get darts in their neck. <laughs> they they drop, and these guys, the Dutch, race back to the Doifkin, and they go directly. Where do they want to go? Away from there. So they go directly south, and that on the on the they get to Australia. So that was on the western 
Cape of what we know as Cape York on mm. the on the western side. That was the first European contact, and the Dutch had been all over from there from 1606, the Batavia 1629, Dirk all of that 1619, all over the west coast mm. of what New Holland, mm. and all they saw was red barrenness. And so they had no interest, really. They just thought. I mean, when I was... It's a huge difference in period, though. We're talking about the early 1600s compared yeah. to Cook in 1770. And, and that's right. So that's 150 years, yeah. 160 years 160, later. Yeah. And so when Cook... When when I was doing the Batavia, the Dutch archivist showed me a map, which was pretty much Australia bar the East Coast from 1633. They knew all about it. But so when Cook has done, he goes to New Zealand and then he, he, his, uh, he then goes to the West and he gets to the South Eastern tip of Australia and comes up and he's looking for a place to land. And then 29th of April, from memory, 29th of April, 1770, oh. uh, the most extraordinary story goes through the, the heads of Botany Bay, what we know as Botany Bay, and there are four Indigenous men fishing. And here's the thing that, first thing that stunned me is they're fishing and this thing called the Endeavour, which is about a thousand times bigger than any man-made object they've ever seen, floats by 300 yards away and they don't look up. And then I get to the most stunning part of the book for me and my research, that what my researchers delivered was they, they drop anchor on the southern shores of Botany Bay. They originally called it Stingray Bay, and they're about to make the landing. Their way is blocked by two brave Indigenous men holding spears and shields, and what they are shouting at the Englishmen is warra, 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 why? And I consulted Indigenous academics, and what it translates to is bugger off, seriously bugger off, we're not joking, bugger the bugger off. And they're saying, don't land. Cook then gets, they throw sort of shiny baubles, no, no interest from them, which they, in the Pacific Islands, there'd been a great interest in shiny baubles, and they shout at them in English, no answer, obviously. They shout at them in Tahitian. They had a Tahitian yeah. holy man with them, no answer. So Cook gets a musket, fires a shot between them. Still they don't move, and here is the most stunning thing. He takes the, he takes the musket, he fills it with birdshot, not, not lead balls to kill, and he fires it at the man on the left and he hits him. And there is the most stunning thing. In this most iconic moment in our history, English foot is about to set foot on Australian soil for the first time. Captain Cook, the most famous man of the lot, shoots the first Indigenous man he sees and... We, the people, 250 years later, don't know about it. And I've said yeah. this many times, but I spoke at an academic event down in ANU uh, in April of this uh, last year. And I said, look, I've just come across this. Well, my researchers yes. have brought it to me, and I can't quite believe it, but this is the account. And how many of you know about this? Not a hand went up. Yes, and so how is it yeah. that we you, don't you know? You make the point, though, in, a, in that reference that uh, Cook did not mean to kill but scare. Oh, absolutely. He was not He was not out to kill. Mm. And he actually was a fundamentally decent and humane man. You know, and people often talk about Cook talking about terra nullius. Cook never used yes. the words terra You make ter that point very nullius. clear. Yeah, Peter Fitzsimons is my guest, and he's the author of the bestseller, James Cook, The Story Behind the Man Who Mapped the World. 
which the legendary English broadcaster Michael Parkinson says, quote, is the most comprehensive account of Cook that's ever happened. That's heck of a wrap, uh, Peter. Final question. Do you think the federal government uh, has been justified in spending millions of dollars for these projects to mark uh, this year's 25th, this 250th anniversary? Two things. It's important that Cook be commemorated. I wouldn't say celebrated. We need to understand more about it. Disclosure, I'm speaking at six, I think the six events on that that thing that go, well, the tour is going around Australia, but I've been careful to donate my money to the bushfire appeal for a start because I do, I want to be a part of it. I want to see it. But I think we need to know more about Cook. But let me put you on the spot here because you quote Cook saying the natives could be forgiven for thinking we British were an invasion and it will be for us Mm. to persuade them otherwise. But those who followed Cook, this is what the revisionist historians Mm. argue, they say they went on to wreak destruction, lasting misery on the Indigenous civilizations in many countries, including Australia. Mm. How would you respond to their argument? The answer is that there can be no argument that European contact with the Indigenous people was an absolute catastrophe. I mean, there's no no doubt about it. But the point, Cook didn't intend that and Cook worried about that. So Cook Cook said it was 1774. They could be forgiven for thinking we're trying to invade them. It will be up to us to persuade them otherwise. Michael Parkinson, in launching your book, said it was unfair to judge Cook's actions against today's world. Mm. A man for his time. Peter, great to have you on the program. Thank you, Tom. Peter Fitzsimons, he's author of James Cook, The Story Behind the Man Who Mapped the World. Well, that's the program this week. And before you tune in again next week, why don't you download the ABC Listen app? Or just visit our website, abc.net.au slash rn, and follow the prompts to Between the Lines where you listen to any of the past episodes over the past six years. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.